0: Welcome to your next session. Hi, I'm Vaughn. We are gonna go on a great adventure this week. What we're gonna focus on is the power of visualization. Now, this particular lesson, we're gonna use a case study by Laurie Ansbach from 1989, where she was researching the power of visualization and the effect it had on a basketball team shooting free throws, uh, 20 per session, essentially. Uh, But it turns out there's been a lot more evidence to back the theory of visualization and the true magnificent power it has on you and I turning our goals, our dreams, and our heart desires into manifested reality. Now, did you know that you're constantly processing images of the world around you in high definition? Your brain is always processing images. And did you also know that you can create images using the power of your imagination to then turn those into reality. Now, it sounds almost too good to be true, but follow with me through the following lessons because I wanna exemplify, not only through the scientific literature that's been done on this, but also through my own personal experience and then ultimately through the experience you'll have as a result of applying these lessons, what it will have in your life. It will make a truly profound effect. In fact, I am convinced that if you don't use visualization, every other strategy is sort of secondary on top of this because we've done a lot of practical work and exercises. The combination of analytical, reasoning, logic, and imaginative fantasy and theory building, uh, the combination of those two culminate to then take what you've written in the form of a goal and then plant it in a vision and plant that vision into visualization. That is the point we're at because visualization to me brings the reality of the infinite into the finite or the world of the physical, right? So there is true magic and power in that. I think you're gonna really enjoy the subsequent lessons. Now, let's talk about vision, visioning or visioneering or imagineering as sort of how it's come to be and why it's so popular now, because it wasn't always, in fact, in the early 19th century, uh, you could consider this a very mystic and very frowned upon practice, and not many people knew it even existed pre 19th century because it was the realm of uh, psychologists, particularly European psychologists, treating uh, patients with visualization that got things moving. Uh, I think Sigmund Freud was you know a proponent of the dream and the unconscious uh, mind and what dreams really meant. And, you know, a lot of them would use this tool to get people into that state. But outside of the psychologist world, you didn't visualize like it just didn't happen. And I think there was a lot of socioeconomical reasons for that. You know, most of the world, the 19th century and particularly 18th century before that, you lived on less than a dollar a day, which is below poverty standards, right? Like it was abject poverty. It was terrible conditions to be in. And, You didn't really have a lot of time in the day to dream and to fantasize, even though we had this imaginative faculty. Now, here's the truth, though. There was a brave bunch of people that would visualize a better day. And that's why we live in the world we do. Because there was a few that would step out away from the masses and get away from the day-to-day grind and see a better world. You know, that's what a vision is. A vision is an empowering, motivating thing that is a world that could be. It not Not one that is. I mean, there's no power in the is. There's power in what could be, right? That's where the hope comes from. Now, it's you being a brave soul, visioning a life that isn't here, but taking it one step further and visualizing that life, seeing those emotions, feeling those emotions, being present in the visualization. Now, that is where you start to turn your dream into a fact. So, if we look at those early 19th century psychologists uh, dabbling around in that and playing with it, didn't really take off socio culturally. Like people just didn't grab onto it from there. It sort of died. Then there was a subset of psychologists in the 60s uh, called sports psychologists, who now is like, you know, of course, sports psychologists, of course they would jump onto this. You know, look how good it is. But in the 60s, this was a radical idea that, you know, you could improve your performance from mental thinking. What? Like, that's crazy, right? Back then, they had to test this theory out because there was a few brave sports psychologists who had been, you know, since the 1930s, playing around with the research on this. Over a 100 tests have been done since then to demonstrate um, not only the theories, but the statistical improvement that can happen as a result of using visualization a certain way. Now, let's talk about three ways of how visualization actually works. So the first one is called psychoneuromuscular theory. Essentially, all that is, and I'll read this out, imagery excites neuromuscular units to cause kinesthetic images of the actual movement. Fancy words for saying small muscle contractions. How does this work? Well, let me ask you right now. Imagine my fingers scraping down a chalkboard, all the way down. If you had a physiological response to that, that's what this psychoneuromuscular theory means. Uh, Another way to conceptualize it is that if you're a runner, or if you visualize running a certain way and you, you get really involved in the activity in your mind's eye, Uh, your muscles actually fire off. The stimuli from your brain shoots down a message down the neural pathways. The stimulation hits the muscle, boom. The node is activated and then it sends back a, a, a message back to the brain saying we're activated and that connection is built and it strengthens the myelin. I think it's the myelin. And it strengthens that pathway and the contraction of the muscle is firing as if it's actually running. Now, this doesn't mean that your big muscles are firing, that you're actually macro moving. But sometimes that can happen. But essentially, there should be some sort of physiological response to the engagement of thinking and uh, imaging in a certain way. The second one is called symbolic perceptual theory. What does this mean? Behavior change is related to mental imagery. It's a factor of cognitive elements of the task. Effectiveness of the imagery is dependent on the amount of cognitive demands the task has. It allows you to gain further cognitive insight to improve. What does this mean? Simply, you're able to role-play the task, that gives you further insight that you can gain. However, if the task is too complex, it's too hard to gain any improvement. So, you know, if you're visualizing running, it's macro-muscular movement, it's pretty easy to do. Um, you don't have to be that specific about it, you just visualize running and you get involved in that. However, if you're practicing maybe keyhole surgery uh, on the heart, well, that is quite micro, quite fine, a lot can go wrong, especially if it's high pressure and Uh, maybe it's an emergency. Well, you know, that's too complex. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't improve, but statistically, a hundred researchers have said, you know, a hundred research experiments have said it's very difficult for people to ascertain improvement from mental imagery when the task is too complex because it becomes a bit unreal. So the third one is vibration and attraction. So in earlier lessons, we talked Um, about and explored the concept of the idea that your thoughts are frequencies. Essentially, your thoughts are like a radio station. You emit off a broadcasting station the thoughts that you think are on a certain radio wavelength. That is called vibration. Everything in the universe vibrates. Nothing rests. So what ends up happening is as you send a thought out, it penetrates all time and space. So it stands to reason that if you are imaging a certain thought or you're imaging a certain movie about how you see life, that is what you attract because that is what you are in harmony with. The correlating circumstance will come into your life. So if we are involved or engaged in images that are negative or images that are less conducive to our potential or are a narrative of your life, a loop about why your life sucks and it's no good, and you start to see those correlating images, that's what you get and that's what you become. So it makes sense that when you've got your goal and you've got your vision, you start to build upon that, the visualization exercises we subsequently will follow will build out in reality, in your mind's eye, the trueness of that uh, picture. And that's what you start to send out as a new frequency of thought, a new station on the radio frequency uh, has been changed essentially. Uh, And that's what you start to get in harmony with. Um, An easy way of conceptualizing that is how much money you earn right now whatever you earn imagine that per month coming in that will change the imagery in your mind Uh, don't get into the idea of believing that or don't get into the idea of doubting it or don't get into the idea of how you're going to do that right now Uh, just take it as a concept when you think of earning what you're earning per month as an income you start to change what you think about now, if you get involved in that, you start to change the frequency of thought and that vibrates and you start to attract that into your life. So that's why visualization is so powerful and it's talked about all the time in self-help. But there, on a deeper level, especially a scientific level, there's a physiological response to what actually occurs. That's why it pays <laughs> to be smart to pay attention to what you focus on. Are you seeing your body in perfect health or are you seeing it in disease, which is a body not at ease? Are you seeing yourself as low in energy? Are you seeing yourself as a prosperous individual? Because whatever words I just said uh, turn pictures up in your mind's eye and that's what you become. So let's continue with this because in the power of visualization, we have four types of visualization. Now, what are they? The first is mental imagery. What does this mean? Well, you are self-conscious, meaning you are consciously aware of your senses and perceptions. Now, they're referred to as quasi-senses and quasi-perceptions. What does this mean? A quasi-sense is like you've got voices that you can hear, you've got dreams that you can recall, uh, you can imagine dreams as well, you can smell certain things. But a quasi-perception is like if I said to you, imagine the feel of wood. That's a quasi-perception, because there's no wood, but you can, you can feel it, right? Or if I said, remember the taste of your favorite ice cream? Or do you smell burnt toast? Well, what does this jacket of velvet feel like on your skin? So, like, you can imagine that, right? Well, that's what mental imagery means, and most research and most sort of visualization uh, that people talk about revolve around that. But that in and of itself is not just what we want to enact when it comes to visualizing. The second type is memory imagery. What does this mean? Well, very simply put, it's voluntary imagery of an event in everyday life. So, for example, can you remember getting up this morning? What did it look like? You could tell me, uh, your, your room and everything. It's remembered or recalled information. The third one is internal imagery. It's a first person perspective. You are performing the task. You can see it through your own eyes. I will demonstrate how I've done that in one of the videos coming up. If you've got a big event, if you've got a particular performance you need to be good for, a presentation, an interview, uh, something on TV, or you just want to prepare because you're a public speaker, you're gonna love the lesson I do on mental rehearsal because it involves that in a really profound way to absolutely accelerate your performance and crush it and knock it out of the park. The fourth one is external imagery. This is a third-person perspective. So imagine you sitting back, chilling in your own cinema in your mind's eye and you're looking at a screen and on that screen is you performing the task. That is the third-person perspective. It's not as powerful, not only will you feel it's not as powerful, but it's been demonstrated from a scientific point of view and a research point of view, that one is not as powerful to do in and of itself. The two most powerful forms are essentially when you involve uh, mental imagery and internal imagery. So you start to get your senses involved with the uh, first-person perspective on the task you're doing. That is the most powerful form of... Um, visualization. Why? Because you're attentioning the quasi-senses and quasi-perceptions, the smells that you can smell, the tastes that you can taste, the feelings that are present, the color of the wind, the color of the temperature, the color of the the sight around you. Is it bright? Is it dim? You start to get all of that hooked into your first-person perspective as as if you're in it. Because we're now gonna go into the important factors of visualization. Um, essentially, they're not necessarily the do's or don'ts, but they're, they're sort of like what you need to know as parameters for good visualization. Um, and those are vividness and controllability. Uh, vividness is what I was just touching on then. Is it realistic? Is it alive? And is it believable? You know, if it's not believable, the visualization is not gonna be as powerful. You're not gonna have as correlating effect on as much attraction in your life. You're not gonna have a correlating effect physiologically. Um, the more vivid it is, the more controllable it is, which is really, really important because researchers have found the more vivid, the better the impact, right? Well, that matters. So if it's vivid, you can control it. Well, let's talk about controllability. What does that mean? Well, simply it means the images you can control or is it so far out of the realm of possibility you cannot control it, like it's out of reality in your mind's eye. You You just can't quite get it. Well, they've found that The controllability is linked to the fact that, are you a good image maker? Now, everybody has an imaginative facility in their mind, but some people are uh, personality driven uh, by creativity. They're more creative than others. Some people are not like that. Some are very analytical, very logical. And we all have these facets, right? But we're sort of, if you score out of it 100 percentile, some people are more creative than others, right? Like, so we know that statistically in personality traits, that doesn't mean we don't all have imagination. Now, imagination can be tuned up and tuned into by all of us, but some of us are gonna to have to work much harder than others to get this one really kicking into high gear, where some, some will do it with no effort. The thing is, though, it's been shown that if you're not that good at imaging, you have less impact on your performance, so it stands to reason you need to practice it, and you should practice it more, and the reason for that is the better you get at it, the better your results. Now, if the task is too complex, it's, very, it's going to be hard for you to imagine, and therefore that's going to impact your results as well. So keep things simple. When you're visualizing, keep it simple. Like build the image, build the image, build the image. And the more you do it over time, the better it gets, the stronger it gets, the brighter it gets, uh, the more real it gets as well. But don't let the fact stop you. If you're not good at imaging right now, if you're not good at this side of things, practice will make you better, but perfect practice will make you perfect at it. Okay, so... As we move into um, the next part of this, I, I want to exemplify two research experiments that happened. Um, and again, check out Laurie uh, Ansbach 1989 study on 20 uh, research into 23 froze and the result of uh, mental imagery. Right? Essentially, it's a wonderful piece. It's like a 95-page thesis that uh, that I've done uh, not dumbed down. I've uh, Drawn out the conclusions for you to make it simple for today. So the first one in 1949, Twining put together the first ring toss experiment. What does this mean? Well, it's the earliest research on mental practice that showed a significant difference on uh, with um, with uh, mental practice. So what happened? 36 college men were randomly assigned into one of three treatment groups: physical practice, mental practice, and control group, basically no practice. Um, the motor skill task was a ring toss. So you toss a ring literally over a stake um, and it was conducted over 22 days. Students received no practice. They received no improvement or no significant improvement. And significant improvement is key because somehow people who don't practice still improve and that's a bit weird, right? But it's there. Um, now, physical the ones that physically practice improved by 137%. Well, that's pretty prolific, right? Okay, so they physically practiced, so there was an improvement. Well, we know that, duh. That's why we practice, right? But mental practice, those who only did that, still improved by 36%. Now, yeah, it was 101% less, but it's 36% more than people who didn't. And they didn't do anything. They sat there, they visualized, they, they got into it. Now, listen, I've got to say that if you were to invest in a company and it got a 36% return, you would invest in the company, right? Because we know 6 to 10% return is pretty, pretty average, pretty good, but it's safe, right? Well, if we know we got 36%, which is almost five times as high, you would be investing your money. And for what? You sat there and visualized ring tossing. like It's pretty good. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get 36% return on um, anything outside of ring tossing. So it doesn't, it doesn't correlate. And that's one of the things that the 100 other researchers, and it's probably over 100 now, that's what they all say is that um, it's not a consistent measure. It's not like if you take that out and apply that to Formula One driving, there'll be a 36% improvement just because you mentally imaged the work. But there is a correlating and significantly different amount depending on the task, depending on the person, the skills you possess, the ability to do it, the ability to image. So there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. The point is this, the basic thing that came is that all tests show people who mentally image stuff improve their results. How much though? Well, it depends on all those variables as I talked, but they do improve and that's what we are, we are committed to finding out what's gonna be the most improvement and that's what the other lessons are for. Now, example number two, the 20 free throw shots. What happened here? 120 students, um, essentially divided into four groups. They give given a test before and a test after. And they were doing only 15 minutes of practice over five sessions. So it's not a lot of time. 15 minutes is not much time. Five sessions is not a lot, really. But it gave some pretty amazing results um, and definitely ones that need to be, you know, expanded upon in the future. So now, group one, mental imagery practice. Now, what is mental imagery again? Remember, mental imagery is the quasi senses and the quasi-perceptions. So they're seeing themselves there, they're, they're feeling it, they're smelling it, they're imagining themselves shooting it, and they're basically sitting, I think, in their, in their locker room with their gear on, but not actually practicing. Now what did they do? They did progressive relaxation, relaxation techniques and, in, and then they added in the internal imagery. Now remember, internal in, imagery is a bit different. Internal imagery is first-person perspective. So, because you can have, you can be aware of the senses and watch yourself do it. And that's external imagery. We don't want that. You want to feel and see and smell everything as you're looking through the lens of your own eyes and experiencing it that way. It's more real. Well, that's the type of practice they did. And they were doing it for, they found five minutes practicing uh, like that for the basketball players was the most effective. And I think that's been shown throughout. any any sort of physical activity that you're sort of mastering in your mind's eye, and I would say most activities, five minutes seems to be key, but they did it for 15. Group two was physical practice. Now, they had no coaching, they were not allowed to be talked to and not assessed, and they weren't allowed to engage in mental practice. Now, you know, hard to, to constrain people doing any of that, but that's how it was. And they had to take the same shots at each time, at each interval, and they weren't allowed to deviate. Group three did mental imagery, which is what group one did, and group practice right, physical practice, which is what group two did. So they got to do both. The imagery, first person, build the sensors, and the practice, same shot every time, every way. Five, um, uh, essentially doing it over five sessions. Then there was a control group who got no coaching, no treatment, weren't allowed to do anything but watch videos of people shooting free throws, that's it. Okay, so that's the control group, and each group did a test before and a test after. And so you're probably wondering, like, what happened? Oh, my God, it must have been amazing. Well, it is profound because, you know, some of it we're going to know intuitively from our own experience in life, but it is quite profound because um, essentially what they found was the mental practice actually ranked third. So if you just sat there and did the work, you you ranked third, but that doesn't mean you didn't improve. If you remember the ring toss, you improved by 36%. There was an improvement, but it wasn't significant about to basically go around the world telling everyone to stop practicing. Because physical practice ranked second. Now, here's the thing. We know in the ring toss, 137% was the improvement above all the other groups, right? Well, physical practice only ranked second. Why didn't it rank first? Well, because those who did the physical and mental practice were greater than just the physical. That is true power, right? Because it makes sense. You know, you need to physically condition yourself in basketball. You need to, to physically work all the body in it. But, That wasn't enough to beat the people who added the uh, first-person perspective and associating all of the the smells, the tastes, the touches, plus practicing. They They achieved the biggest significant improvement overall. Now, the researchers said, although the mental imagery group did not significantly improve over the control group, a definite trend was emerging. With more extensive training and more contact sessions, a significant effect may have been found. And that's true. Now, they were very limited in what they got to do, but the thesis actually explored all of the other subsequent um, uh, research that had been done anyway to to find the loopholes or find what worked and what didn't. And that is something we know intrinsically. We know that if we can see it in our mind, we can hold it in our hand. We know if we're physically doing the work, well, we're also going to benefit as well. So what does this mean for us? It means that no matter what we do physically, which we can say is physical practice, if we're physically writing out our goals and physically writing out affirmations and physically doing that stuff, it's not gonna be as powerful and effective as if we were imagining it and feeling it and sensing it as well. So in the subsequent lesson, I want you to go through um, the exercises on how to relax and how to image, and then also go through the visualization exercises, go through the affirmation exercises, the declaration exercises, understand why you need to do it. It's powerful. It's going to add in and cement and integrate all of the previous exercises that you've actually done because you're going to be attaching emotion and sensory factors to um, the goals that you've done and the vision that you've built. So it's super powerful and it's a hell of a lot of fun. You know, um, I can't imagine a better exercise for you to do. And like I said, if, you'd, if you don't really get into this, I don't know anything that's as powerful because you're already doing this in your own life, whether you realize it or not. Now we're constructing our own visual movie for us to enact and uh, for us to make a reality in our life. I have loved bringing this lesson to you. Make sure you hop on to the other lesson as soon as possible and whatever you do, do joy, do love and build the experience that you want for your life. This is Vaughn and thank you.